Dispatch Publishing presents Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Naqui. In 1959, in her 20th year, Sister Shanti was surprised by Joy. Hira, Shanti's name by birth if you recall, was in her university years, taking off assignments given to her by others when the Joy arrived most unexpectedly. She lived at home and was enrolled in Delhi University's law course when not many women were. Her father and mother were both happy. Hira was not. Still, she remained faithful to her lectures, which were mainly built upon the vagaries of mouldering British jurisprudence. She went to the mandir with her parents for hours-long pujas and recited Om Bhur Bhava Swaha time and again. She continued playing the piano with the meagre passion she could muster. But change was brewing. Miss Winthrop, an old British mom, Delhiite and church organist, had been Hira's piano teacher all through the girl's childhood. Failing health finally sent the old woman home to Cornwall. A new teacher was necessary and the search commenced. All the while, Hira, so given to dutiful obedience and guileless openness, felt she lived a lie. Why, you ask? Hidden in her bag was a rosary she carried everywhere. She had long since begun toying with the Catholic religion, testing it. It was the first real secret she had ever kept from her parents and friends alike, but the secret's life-changing power took her breath away every time she ran her fingers over the beads. Her parents might have been all right with a stashed rosary, but it was really much more than that. During occasional visits to her alma mater, Hira met Sister Angelique, who always greeted her with a smile to dwarf the sun. Their aim? To further discern whether Hira was meant to reject the world and its glittering, false attractions and become a sister. There were short visits to different religious communities about Delhi, prayers and Bible study. Hira secretly read the biographies of saints instead of case law. As she was driven around in her ambassador, she saw the impoverished on Delhi streets, the waves of migrants arriving from the countryside with nothing, and her heart went out to them. She had given the abounding misery of the world hardly a thought growing up, accepting the order of things. But now, every time she played the piano, she put her hands before her and wondered what it would be like to instead see them heal wounds, care for the sick, bind the broken, set the oppressed free. To see things change, for them and in her. Hira was equal parts terrified and thrilled at the heady prospect of it all, and all of this spiritual tumult was kept bottled up inside. Meanwhile, her parents had begun discussing Hira's marriage. Though she had been enamoured with the idea since girlhood, now she only played long. Nuptials would not come for another two years, 
Not until the degree is finished, her father said, full stop. Meanwhile, Sister Angelique believed Hira could do well in her own community. The sisters of Our Lady of Loreto, but she could see in Hira's eyes that the familiar order that had provided Hira her education was not so attractive. There was a recent offshoot she might be interested in, Sister Angelique told Hira. Started by a charismatic European nun, a former Loretoite herself, just few years before, right here in India. This religious community was dedicated to the service of the poorest of the poor while living outside the cloister and in a poverty that matched those served by its members. Hira began listening for the name of the new community's founder and heard it echoed all over. Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa. At Sister Angelique's recommendation, Hira wrote to Mother with a set of interrogatories that would make her law professors proud. The response, received two months later, simply said, Come and see. Through this period, the search for a suitable piano teacher continued without success. Finally, to her parents' satisfaction, an accomplished older professor at Delhi University was prepared to offer private lessons, although not so satisfactorily, at a significantly higher rate than old Miss Winthrop's. Her parents balked, but Hira's playing was seen as an investment when searching out a husband. Necessary with her so-so looks, her mother said quietly. Not a stunner, her father concurred. And so it was settled. But just two days before starting lessons, the professor excused himself. Too busy, simply too busy, he said. Hira smiled. But he could offer a recommendation for another teacher, he said. Hira frowned. A visiting American professor was willing to do it, and at a lower rate. And so, on the appointed day, a young American appeared at the door to the family home, and Hira's life changed for good. Walter Simmons was lanky and walked as if on stilts. He wore a well-appointed coat and tie, but suffered for it in the heat. He was a Fulbright scholar from Philadelphia, recently minted with his doctorate in ethnomusicology, and he also taught at the university. Piano was his first instrument, and his most accomplished, and he could play in a variety of styles, though they could stick to classical if that's what Hira wanted, he explained to her wary parents. Hira stole glances as he said this. She was shocked at his youth. Not conventionally handsome, he did have a clean-cut confidence and appeared like a rising US politician seen in grey-inked newsprint photographs. Relatively new to the country and not particularly bothered with cultural sensitivity despite his academic discipline, Walter shook her hand in greeting. After a brief interview about her musical preferences and aspirations, she couldn't meet his eyes, the lesson commenced. He put Hira through her paces. Good, he said. Excellent, he said, offering mild correction Hero there. He tutted at the pieces she was so fond of playing and vowed to bring some new glorious modern sheet music to the following lesson. 
Some jazz, maybe, he said, scratching at his pomaded hair. God knows where I'll find it, though. I am not so sure I would be able to play that, she said after a pregnant pause. I have attempted the rare piece before and found myself ill-suited to its style and manner. So very anxious, she spoke as formally as she was capable of while her nose was practically wedged between notes on the page. Hira, he said her name so forthrightly. Anything worth doing is worth failing at. This is my philosophy in all things. We'll give it a try. She nodded, hardly believing Walter, her teacher, a young man, a young foreign man, sat so close to her on their shared bench. They reached to turn the page at the same time, and their hands touched again. With the touch came the spark of a mutual idea that inexplicably and immediately caught flame. He smiled at her, and she smiled back. Mita sulks, resting on her haunches, apart from the others, unsure what she'd hoped for as the feast unfolds. It certainly wasn't this. There is much laughter this evening as they eat Rajasthani food. Dal bati churma, piaz kachori, gatte ki sabzi, and sip mango lassi before teetering on the edge of diabetic comas with nigh bottomless bowls of gulab jamun for dessert. It took two delivery men to bring their order, stacked high in six plastic bags stretched to the limit. Jinnah regales them with stories about her childhood in Goa and her stupid husband. Adiba listens to word of his father as he plops more sticky sweet morsels in his mouth. There were okay times with him early on, she says. They were both from good families, same caste, same faith, their arranged marriage made sense. The ceremony took place and though they tried to love each other, he began drifting and began drinking and began hitting. And soon she was living in a distant land even when sharing the same bed. Adiba's birth helped nothing, she says. She casts her adult son a tender look, though one full of resignation. He remains focused on his dessert. There were chances along the way, Gina recounts, for them to reconcile and form their marriage into something new. She hoped the move to Delhi would change things. Then her husband invested in the brothel with some garrulous acquaintances. He had actually managed to keep the true nature of his work secret for years. They had been living in relative comfort and she didn't ask questions. But the ever-widening chasm between them was enough to end the marriage, even though there was no formal dissolution. It wasn't until these Delhi years that she finally stopped attending Mass. What happened to him? Anu asks. Heart attack, Jinnah says. With his beak inside of one of the girls. Can you believe it? All manner of debts and only a brothel's business to pay them. Her eyes are glassy. She opens her mouth but doesn't speak. You could sell it all, sister interjects. A clean break from the past is sometimes necessary. Gina's mutterings evaporate into the air. All I know is no one to take care. Everyone in the room is quiet contemplating tomorrows unlike today.
What about you, sister? Rifat asks. Why are you here? God, I imagine. Which? Anu asks. My God, the one I serve. Sister looks slightly troubled by this statement. She decides to change the subject. Mita has told you about Ram. We all knew him, Jina says. Oh, Ram, he was here often. Sister darkens. Yes, well, I have known him since he was a young boy. I saw him through many difficulties and troubles. And when he was still little, I saw a vision, just so, of who he, who he might be. She pauses. Do her eyes glisten? Have you ever had that experience? Sister asks. A vision of who someone is made to be. She turns to each woman. It's easiest with children. Not a view of what they will do in the future, but who they could be with all of the hurt and fear stripped away. They all look mystified. Chewed food actually tumbles from Adiba's gaping mouth. Sister simply smiles, shrugs, saddens. You are exhausted, Gina declares. These hours we keep are not yours. We sisters don't get so much rest, even less these days for me, since Ram especially. Still, maybe it would be a good idea. A tear escapes Mita's eye. It is followed by another, and eyes slowly turn to her. Gina goes to Mita, wraps her arms around the girl, and makes her involuntary tense. I'm sorry for having Adiba discipline you the other night, she says. It wasn't good of me. Mita clenches her jaw, bites her tongue, longs for Gina to never touch her again. Sister will have your cot, Mita, and Adiba will give you his mat. He moans, shoveling another samosa in his mouth as consolation. Come with me. Mita says to sister, not without tone. She lets her tin plate clatter to the ground. Sister budges, but has trouble standing. Oh, my body. Mita extends a hand, lifts her up, leads sister, flips the switch, deposits her case. Sister is assaulted by the room they enter. The union of smells, sweat, perfume, incense, sex. The obtrusive sights, posters, magazines, mirrors, stains. She meets all with a grimace. She inspects the posters more closely. They're beautiful, Mita says, indignant. This, this is not beauty. She moves from one manufactured pose to another, overwhelmed. It's glamour, only glamour. Beauty is something else. She turns back to Mita, something else entirely. This is where you stay, where everything with Ram happened. Mita sours. That's the court, she says, gesturing. Sister nods and sets her creaky body down. This doesn't do anything for us, Mita blurts. You being here, maybe you're here for a night, a week, maybe a year. This doesn't help us, Rifat, Anu, Deepti and me. Sister can only muster confusion. 
You're going to leave, Mita clarifies. That's what we're all thinking. This night is just, just putting off what's to come. But after, it will be even worse. Mita pauses, clearly reflecting on events earlier than tonight's, perhaps involving Ram. It's better to never know a thing like love, she says, so you don't know what you're missing. Sister looks at her hands, traces the worn ridges on their surface as she speaks. I'm doing what I can while I can. Small things with all the love I can muster. This is the only defence sister can summon. Mita doesn't understand, doesn't care to. She slides her nail under loose paint flecks on the wall. Would you care if I clear that nightstand? Sister asks. And can you find me a candle? We have light. They aren't load shedding. I need to make an altar. The thought of observing an odd foreign ritual actually appeals to Mita. She retrieves a candle from the kitchen space and plucks a match from Rifat's things and the sleeping mat from Adiba's room. Sister pauses from her unpacking and gives a thankful word, takes the candle, lights it, pours the melted wax on the nightstand and sticks the candle into place. She rises from her knees to turn off the light. Mita steps back into the hallway and hears Deepthi tell a joke, something about a talking penis. Laughter erupts again and Mita feels the hatred of this place grip her. She recites a nursery rhyme she learned in her first brothel from one of her mother's cousins and breathes deeply. This keeps her from screaming. Reclaiming herself, she watches Sister through the cracked door. Sister, softly lit, absent her sari, has donned a clean set of white nightclothes. Mita almost gasps at the sight of the nun's head. Her hair is cut shorter than she's ever seen a woman wear before. She looks like someone, an adulteress maybe, who is shorn and trotted out among the village to be shamed. Sister leans a wooden crucifix that must have come from her case against the wall. Before her is a folded sheet of paper, a letter, and Sister puts it at the feet of the small carved man suspended on the cross. And then Sister slumps on her knees, listing to one side. Then there are small movements. Sister shakes with quiet sobs. A foreign feeling registers, but Mita doesn't know a word for it, something floating between compassion and empathy. She is tempted to go in and kneel beside Sister and ask if she needs anything. She ends up leaving her bee and retreating into herself, sliding to the floor of the darkened corridor. The pain of Ram's loss, so gnawing, so acute this morning, is already blunted by the day's discoveries. New tears seem impossible to muster, and yet there is one. But Francis, be not mistaken, this teardrop is not an offering for Ram. A momentary urge to be a thousand miles away anywhere else takes hold. She breathes deeply until the invisible hand around her neck loosens. She looks in on sister again. The old woman's crying has stopped, but she remains hunched, possibly asleep where she kneels. 
Mita's eye travels to the nightstand again and notices something new laid at the foot of the crucifix. A key. A small key. A small key that undoubtedly fits the small lock on Sister's case. Mita pushes in the door with a clearing of her throat and Sister starts. Mita offers an exaggerated yawn. It's late, Sister. Big day tomorrow. This meeting and all that we have to do in the Tibetan colony. Rest is needed. Sister sighs. Yes, I suppose so. She blows out her candle and staggers to Mita's cot in the dark. She gives a sort of grunt, a wince, whether from pain or the odours or the creak of the cot that reminds what this room is used for, Mita knows not and does not ask. She just strips her outer clothes off, unfurls the rolled mat and lies down, struggling to find a way to repose that doesn't press her bruised, bony edges. Within a minute, Sister is asleep and, unfortunately for Mita, snoring. Mita shifts. Instead of her mind slowing and succumbing to its weariness, it only moves faster and faster. That key, that small key. Twelve. By revisiting these events, a rather startling thought has come to me, Francis. The brothel and convent aren't so very different. Confined space, regular schedules, lack of sleep, work with members of the community, poor pay, poverty, non-marriage, passions, fear of being trapped for the rest of one's life, suffocation, bad food, discipline, corporal or otherwise, meted out by superiors, survival through the fostering of a sisterhood. Hope for eventual salvation. Both are places of worship, though to very different ends. I can see you're not pleased with my comparison. It has hints of the provocative in it, I'll admit. Let me say it differently. Suffering takes place in both, but where it is directed makes all the difference. We the religious stare at Jesus suspended on that cross for all time in a moment of his greatest pain. Mother, for all her eccentricities, understood that identifying with Christ's sacrifice was a form of love for him. The poor of the earth are being crucified daily, she'd say, and so we work to relieve that suffering. We all know, as we do unto our suffering brother, we do unto Jesus himself. And so we, MCs, prepare to serve and seek Jesus in all his distressing disguises. Impoverished, cast out, miserable, hungry, tired, desperate, exiled, lost and trapped. And so I turn to my final point. We inside the religious community dream of being what we are not, namely saints. The woman trapped inside the brothel lives out of the same place until she is so pushed into the ground that hope is lost and she cannot imagine being something different than she is. The nun is not worthier than the prostitute. Till the day they die, it is God's grace they both need. How do I know this? Because to this day, I know Mita very well. 
I'm sorry if in knowing that meter will not die, I've robbed my story of some of its dramatic effect. No, I am most sorry to relay that she lives much as she did before. A bit deadened, a bit dense, tending to show up at the most inopportune moments. When a child is inconsolable, a thief has stolen from our house or a brawl breaks out in the street. It can almost be counted on that she will make herself known. Such a needy soul. I've sat across from Meeta many times, but often for only short visits since, I am sad to say, we make poor company. Though I tolerate her little, I still love her like myself. How could I not, knowing all she's been through? Ah, here she is again. She has risen to take in the morning sun, just as we have. I'll tell you more later, it would be impolite to carry on in her somewhat dim-witted presence. Delhi is brilliant from the rooftop, isn't it, Francis? The blue, smoggy sky, the tickling breeze. It's like the heat and humidity conspire together, saying, just a few more minutes we will give them before we descend. And then, pow! Look at how light breathes into the city and shadows cast over the streets begin to give way. You almost feel alone, except for your poor neighbours poking out of the million barsiti hovels erected on rooftops all over the city. Look how those below can run about their business with not a thought of who watches from above. Unschooled children at play. The knife sharpener who calls out for customers as he rolls his whetstone. And look at that. Would you believe it? There go our monkey chases on motorcycle, surely off on an early morning mission. Mita notes none of the world's waking. She stretches out and accepts the sun's caress. I've always loved how in the groggy first moments of waking, whatever was experienced the night before fades. Like the Lord has reached in and pressed a reset button, granting us some distance from ourselves and what bedevils us. Of course, this is fleeting, but those few moments in the in-between are a grace. Before I became a nun, I can't tell you how they sustain me. Now it is bells ringing and jumping out of bed at four in the morning, superiors bearing down on you if you indulge in the least bit of extra rest. If I am ever superior... God above what I thought, I shall let my sisters enjoy their waking. Likewise, let's relish the here and now, this moment of fleeting calm and simple beauty. This day will unfortunately not hold another like it. Mita descends, so must we. Hungry? Some indigestion from last night's feast? I'd say let's check the leftovers below, but the amount of oil and fat and salt and poor refrigeration are not what you need at this moment. You've avoided the dreaded deli belly thus far, and we can't have you bowled over when so many happenings have yet to happen. Paratas, let's get some. There's a vendor close by, and he's a wickedly good, not like Riffat's leaden pancakes. Hold the chain while you head down the stairwell. I won't be responsible for the Holy Father taking a tumble. How is sister this morning, you ask? She's well. But you hear that distant tubercular cough behind closed doors? 
Rifat, you remember, is not so well. That's her, nearly expelling a lung. I'll spare you the scene while we take some nourishment. Sister, back in her sari, glasses in place, crucifix pinned to her chest, is up and tending to Rifat. The others are all trying to sleep a little more. Ah, if you squint, you can see Sister coming down the stairs with her arm around Rifat. And there's Mita tearing down after them, son's makeup in quite a hurry, shouting. Don't worry, Pope, you're really not missing much. Mita says Rifat starts every morning this way. No big deal. Sister says Rifat is very sick. Mita says there's no time for taking her to the doctor. Investigation needs to continue. It'll take hours, there's no money, etc. Sister says Mita is a selfish girl if that's what she thinks. That her friend is suffering, that sister will pay. Let the dead bury the dead. But this one is not yet dead, etc. Rifat says nothing, just stands there mouth agape, forgetting to cough as this argument over her takes place. Jinnah is on the street now too. I see you're not as impressed by this as Mita, Rifat and I are. Jinnah has not descended to the street in at least three years. She gives her blessing that Rifat be taken and orders Mita to go along. The conclusion, you can see for yourself. Sister ushers Rifat into the waiting auto rickshaw and Mita begrudgingly joins. Off they go while Jinnah waves. Ah, Jinnah, so happy in this moment. Last night felt like years of vileness and kilograms of pain were shed under Sister Shanti's brief care. That Jinnah just supported Sister taking Rifat to a clinic shows an untapped seam of compassion was opened. It makes me sad to think how short this interlude will be. Come, Francis, there are potato paratas to be eaten. The enlightened thinking of today is that these whores or prostitutes or hookers or tarts or streetwalkers or sluts or comfort girls or girlfriends or tramps or floozies or women of the night or sex workers should not be stigmatised for being in this line of work. That it's a woman's choice, her right to decide what she does with her body. That this is better than starving. That if she consents, it's fine. Work has dignity, whatever it is, and selling one's body is no different than selling the labour of one's hands, that... Sorry, I'm holding up the line. Yes, that's the menu. Too many options, I agree. Let me order for you. I think I know just what you'd like. Puturu peas in the man's right hand. That's right, they are a real bargain. Take a seat, I'll bring the chutneys. Where were we? Right. I'm past anyone who wants to celebrate and condone this life. We live in a twisted age. Look at these women. No, they are not powerless, not hopeless, helpless waifs. Some accept their lot and face it bravely. But the human dignity these advocates purport to protect by advocating for the existence of this GB road is trampled on no matter what they say. Think of the children who grow up in these environments. They are the broken outcomes bred by such advocacy. But I'm also past anyone who condemns these women for what they do. 
I imagine you are too, Francis. I tell you, I've spent time working in these brothels, with these women, men too, who can forget the eunuchs, and I love them all. If given a chance to make a life elsewhere, a real chance at a livelihood, not a one would remain. We can't abandon them to sloppy compassion. They need love. They deserve it. And there I've gone ranting again. Impressive, Pope. Are you planning to eat the styrofoam plate they are served on also? Another round? Why not? Lalu, another one for the Holy Father. Who knows when you'll find another chance to have the choicest aloo parata on GB Road. Right. Maybe that's a dubious distinction. Leaning close now. Taking the others here out of the corner of your eye. All men. All customers. Labourers, coolies, filling their empty stomachs after nights trying to fill their empty souls with drink and sex and false intimacy. I have my ministry to the women of GB Road, but who can forget these sad, pathetic, wrongdoing men? I sometimes stop here and strike up conversations. There is always one who pretends he has stumbled here by accident. GB, you say, is here? They stand offish at first when a young religious woman in white dress comes to chat with them in the red light district. Lalu, the squat cook behind the counter in undershirt and flip-flops, doesn't understand why I keep coming. I shrug. I'm a sucker for what my faith sells. Oh, Jesus, foreign god among gods, on the cross and off, how I love you. But how do you make any sense in India, Lord? in a land of Hindus, Muslims, Zoroastrians, Jains, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, Marxists, capitalists and Hindus, a land already teeming with 36 million gods. Why add a dash of the good Lord and a shake of his followers into the mix? The answer? Why not? Because he's an imperialist imposition, a colonial relic. A foreign god. And yet, I was found out by him. Cold, made whole. Those arguments, while valid, fall apart for me. A mystery within the mystery. How I love him, nonetheless. I am even a missionary, telling others to love him too. What a thing! What a thing! And what would Jesus do? We followers ask ourselves. Visit the prisoner? Clothe the naked, heal the sick, unbind the bound. Converse with the slobby John. That last one is my own addition. And so I return to my earlier point. GB is a vicious trap. For everyone. Buyers, sellers and the products themselves. I can see the value of the customers. Poor, trapped fools who are ground down by their poverty and empty lives, devoid of hope. Sure, a number test my patience, but you'd be shocked how many in their tiredness and shame will open up and share their deepest secrets, sadnesses, fears. It's easy to say you care for the poor prostitutes of GB, but to care for the little pricks who keep this whole enterprise running, to try to love them, that's an uncommon grace.
and my stomach to love them, let alone tolerate them, is a credit to sister's example and God's movement. Here's a napkin. You've got some grease on your chin. Ah, right on schedule. There's our man, Constable Singh, ambling past. We need to see this. Up he goes, climbing those stairs. You can see he has a certain spring in his step. I'm afraid of the reasons why. He taps the door to number 201 with his steel-tipped lathi once, twice. It is Jinnah who hollers an answer. Close today! Syphilis outbreak! Most unfortunate! Come back another time! Not close to me, Singh says, bemused. Open up, Jinnah. I'm here to see one of your girls. That's what they all say. Not all of them are police. In an instant, the door opens a crack. Jinnah's slitted eye is visible. What do you want? Constable Singh rubs his belly, scratches his balls. He peers above the short woman's head, looking down the hall. He finally meets Jinnah's glare with a wide grin. Meet her in? No. That's so. He pushes the door in further with his stick. Jinnah huffs. Leave me be. I've already paid this month. Besides, business has been shit. One of my girls is out of commission going on two weeks. As I said, I'm here for Meeta. He twists one tip of his moustache with his thumb and forefinger. I have some information to share about her dead man. When does she return? Later. Maybe I'll just wait. Pervert, she says under her breath. Old part, Singh barges in of an investigation. Gina topples over. You can't do this, Gina hollers. By now, Singh sees the rest of the quarter's residents are all hidden behind the door. You, he points to Anu and orders, get me a chair. Anu obliges while Adiba helps his mother up, refusing to look at Singh. An hour or so passes and Constable Singh relishes making them squirm like worms pinched under his heel. There is sound in the hall. They can all hear Meeta's familiar high-pitched nattering as she ascends. Rifat steps in first, followed by Meeta. Meeta freezes on seeing Singh. You? Meeta raises her hand to her mouth. Singh nods, a tight smile, a small wave, a clearing of his throat. What's the hold-up? Sister says, pushing in past Meeta. Oh, who are you? Sister looks around. She doesn't like what she sees. Seems you've put everyone on edge, she says. Constable Singh, he replies. You are? An old nun, she says. You are wanting something. Here on police business, I need to see Meeta. In the back, I have news to share with her. Singh's lasciviousness practically radiates off him. About Ram, he adds. Meeta unconsciously steps behind the old nun. Sister Shanti clears her throat. Ah, then tell us all. Air it out. We are all looking into the young man's death, aren't we? The rest nod reluctantly. Constable Singh's eyes narrow. I must insist. Sister walks up to him, looks at him, leans in close, 
she smiles nearly face to face and looks him in the eye. I must insist. Who are you to talk to an officer of the law like this? Sister turns, begins pacing. Singh, your name is. I take it you're stationed down here? Constable Singh folds his arms. Three yellow stripes on your shoulder, is it? A head constable. That's a very nice rank. A low rank, but at least not the very bottom. Climbing your way up the chain, hoping not to be a GB much longer. But then again, this is a very lucrative posting. So many illegal activities. Just a bit of selective enforcement here, a little application of justice there, and your admittedly pitiful salary grows by leaps. Constable Singh forces a smile. My dear constable, your deputy commissioner of police and his lovely little wife and three precious gems of children come once a month to share food and care with the disabled children in my orphan's home. We always have such lovely conversations. The next time I see him, I'd be so pleased to tell him how you selflessly shared your information without a second thought for yourself. Constable Singh swallows. I can't imagine how disappointed he'd be to hear the opposite, Sister said. His colour drains. How incredibly disappointed. His erection flags. What information do you have to share with us? Constable Singh assesses his options and decides to share. I have a name, he says. A name? Sister suddenly darkens. What value is that to us? The name of the murderer. Sister's eyebrow arches. Give it. He's called Manoj. Manoj Bajpai. And how did you come by it? Security cameras at the railway station. Got a good look at the one who started scuffling with Ram on the platform. Did complex analysis of the footage, cross-referenced in police databases. Interviewed bystanders. Nonsense you're giving me. The deputy commissioner is no fan of lies. The policeman sighs. The man's identification was left behind in his suit jacket pocket. It was found at the scene. A murderer was kind enough to carry a proper ID? It appears so. Sister Tuts. An amateur. She turns to Mita. So we have a face and now a name. Mita is still avoiding Singh's predatorial eyes. That's right, Sister says. So what are you police types doing to catch him? Running all over, canvassing neighbourhoods, radio bulletins, wanted posters. It was Singh's turn to snort. None of that. If one low-level criminal wants to kill another, watch your mouth. Sister snaps. How dare you speak ill of the dead? Mita shouts. The room falls into complete silence, but for Adiba scratching his dandruff-laden head. Even he eventually stops. Look, I'm assigned to GB. There's no motivation to seek out this gunda, this thug. The amount of time and energy for a guppy fish like Manoj is beyond the dignity of our inspectors. 
What if we do the work? Sister asks. We find him, we trap him, we deliver him. You get to arrest a murderer. Get a commendation from my mouth straight to the deputy commissioner's ear. What then? Constable Singh lets his smile shine forth again. That would be something else. It would be my duty to assist. I, of course, have my doubts this one. He points to Meeta. And you, Sister Shanti of the Missionaries of Charity, Sister Batsin, will be up to the task. I can't be held responsible if you're injured while attempting police business, you know. Against my highest recommendation, it is. Thank you for your concern. Pass your number to that one over there. I have no use for those mobile phones. We'll call you if we need to see you again. I'm happy to be of assistance, Sister Shanti of the Missionaries of Charity. Whatever is needed. With a turn of her head, she dismisses the policeman. As soon as Constable Singh is out of earshot, Meeta cannot contain herself. She whoops, lifts and lowers her arm in a phallic sag. The room erupts in laughter. Rifford clasps her hands together in front of her, genuinely touched by what Sister shared. That's so wonderful that someone as important as the Deputy Commissioner does such a thing, visiting the children every month. Sister reaches up and lays a maternal hand on Rifat's shoulder and pats her twice. She smiles impishly. My dear, I've never met the deputy commissioner in my life. This has been a Dispatch Publishing production of Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Nakui. Text copyright 2017 by Ted Oswald. Music by Kevin McLeod, used by permission. If you have enjoyed this production, please consider rating and reviewing this audiobook at audible.com and on goodreads.com.